Okay, my friends. Welcome back after our long interregnum. I'm sorry, we have a little bit of a tardy start today. Today's lesson has been generously dedicated by Marla Kribus and Jake Hacker. It commemorates the yard site of Jake's mother, Malka, Bas Moshe Aaron, and Marla's father, Leib Rachmiel ben Avram Yitzchak. May the Neshamas have an Aliyah, and may they have Nachas from the Torah that we are studying together in their merit. Today, we got a story. So interesting and apropos that Hayom Yom for today is about stories. In fact, Rebbe Rashab said that in, if you will, the Hasidic concept of Yitzias Mitzrayim, which means transcending one's limitations, excuse me, that there is this idea of Yitzias Mitzrayim. Yitzias Mitzrayim means transcending limitations, the things that shackle or inhibit our souls and our true potential. And just like when we talk about the actual Yitzias Mitzrayim, the idea of going out of Egypt, literally, there's this Torah concept of telling the story. So too, in the Hasidic Yetzirah Mitzrayim, there's this ideal of telling a story, and the story enables us to transcend or to leave our Mitzrayim, our Mitzrayim, our limitations behind. Which is really interesting, because, because today we have a story. And I have to tell you that when Rabbeinu Bachaya seems to be saying simple things, it's much harder to understand. There's nothing simple about this. I mean, I've heard people gloss over this. Rabbeinu Bachaya makes a basic statement. He's talking about the benefits of Betochen. He's making the case for Betochen. We're still in the Peticha. We're still in the introduction to why having betachin is a really good idea and something that is worth making the investment for. So Rabbeinu Bahaya says, well, in addition to the various other benefits, here's one more, something else that will necessarily enrich your life or make your life more rewarding, even easier. Interestingly, though, this time, Rabbeinu Bahaya attaches a a story. It doesn't give us a source, but it seems to be a, not just a metaphor, not just a, a tale. This is a story, a Torah story. And Rabbeinu Bechaya felt that he couldn't make his point or convey this particular message without the story. That's where we get a story. But the story is not simple. And it's going to require a tremendous amount of attention and analysis so that 
we might appreciate his deeper message. I don't want to belabor the point. It's not a simple class. So fasten your seatbelt. And I'm going to do the very best I can with Hashem's help to try not to simplify, but to try to clarify, to elucidate, and to explain so that we can properly understand the very, very profound ideas that are couched in this pithy sentence and the story that follows. Okay, with no further ado, let's get right into it. Rabbeinu Bechaya now, and if you're following along in the new Kihat book, we're going to be continuing on page 29, what, uh, what they entitle as immunity from the fatigue of traveling. I just called it, stay home. Stay home, said the great Rabbi Bahaya. You don't want to travel. That's, it's not good for you. Umehen. So, amongst these worldly or material benefits, says Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, is menuchat hanefesh, what we would call, I suppose, an English peace of mind, but it really means, refers to consciousness. A person who is in a tranquil, a relaxed state, milechet bidrochim harachokim, from traveling to distant places. So there's this idea that when you're traveling, it's hard to focus, and that travel has a way of dislocating a person from his sense of security or surety you kind of have a little bit scattered when you travel. Invariably, before people travel, they can't focus. They're a little bit nervous, they're a little concerned. That's the nature of travel. When we talk about spending time to understand something, the Hebrew verbiage is to sit and learn. Lasheves velulmid, in Yiddish, zitzen or lernen. Why? Because it's true, somebody could be in a standing position or posture when they're learning Torah, but the point is one must be settled. And when you're not settled, beginning with being in a state of movement or flux geographically, it's hard for your mind to be settled. For the most part, those who are extremely successful in their Torah study aren't traveling much. And those who did travel found that the travels gave them travails which detracted from their ability to focus. There are exceptions, but that's the rule. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, if you have betochen, you're going to be able to avoid those disruptive challenges of, cha of travel. And then he says, Travel not only robs you of your proverbial peace of mind, 
Not only does it not allow you the tranquility of spirit or consciousness so that you can focus on what you want to accomplish and spend time delving into something properly or experiencing life in its fullest sense because you're calm and relaxed, you have it together. But in addition to this, he says, Asher he, which it, and this refers to the travel, Mechala hagufois, it has a way of consuming. It eats away at, or perhaps if you want to go to an extreme, consumes or destroys a person's health or material composure. So it's not only about peace of mind, it's ultimately about deterioration of one's bodily welfare. It accelerates the process of aging so that if it would have taken you, say, 90 years to get to a point in which your body is all worn out, if you do a lot of traveling, you'll accelerate that process. And the wear and tear on your body will begin to show signs on a much, much, in a much quicker way. <laughs> it's basically a way for you to spend your bodily wherewithal or material strength or ability in a much quicker time. So traveling utilizes a lot of energy and it detracts from our health and wellness. As is stated in the verse, and here Rabbeinu Bachaya references a Pasuk in Tehillim, a verse in Psalm, which is found in Psalms, Psalm 102, verse 24. So Ina, the word Ina comes from the terminology of Inui, which means literally affliction or causing pain. So ina baderech koichi, what we have here is a person who becomes tormented or afflicted baderech by virtue of the road. Kitzar, the pasuk finishes and says, kitzar yomai. It shortens one's days. That's pretty explicit. Now the interesting thing is that when we look at the mefarshim, the commentaries on this particular verse from the book of Tehillim, they're not really speaking about journey or travel. They're speaking about exile, displacement. For example, in the Mitzudah's David, he says, Ina, Ina ha'oyev koichi, the enemy has afflicted me. Ubazer. And by virtue of the enemy-imposed exile, Kitzar Yomai, my days were shortened. Ibn Ezra says something very similar. He says, this is L'shoin Chasidim, this is the syntax, the expression of the pious Begalut Me'eretz Merchakim, in their exile to distant lands.
Although Ibn Ezra finishes off by saying it is known that that the pain or difficulty of the way, the affliction of travel, does shorten a person's life, the Ibn Ezra is pretty clear that he's speaking about a forced journey, an exile. The Radak is even more explicit. He says, we speak here about the the enemy has afflicted me, because of the pain due to exile. A person is constantly pulled from place to place. And it is precisely that affliction that was intended. The lack of composure and settlement. The constant movement. Being a inmate in a displaced person's camp is not a good way to live. It's not a salutary for, for health. You don't have a place of your own. When the war was over and everybody went home, we, the Jewish people, we couldn't go home. The British wouldn't let us into Palestine. And people couldn't go back to their homes because in places like Celts, the locals killed them for the sin of coming home. Thousands of Jews lived in displaced persons camps for years until finally we were able to establish ourselves in the land we call Israel today, our eternal homeland, and until countries like Canada, the United States, actually allowed Jews to emigrate and to be absorbed into the local communities. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about displacement. We're talking about exilic affliction. This is not about journeying. I haven't yet met the person who said to me, oh, Rabbi, I'm so tired, I'm, I'm wasted, I've, I've lost years of my life from going on vacation. You know, so bad, I had to go to the Bahamas, they, they forced me to go to Mexico, and then, ah, oh, terrible, just awful. <laughs> People spend tens of thousands of dollars a year on these journeys and vacations, and they come back looking pretty robust. It isn't travel in and of itself that we're speaking about. So I don't know if we're just talking about the fatigue of travel. If you, if you look at the Mepharshim, they seem to be very clearly indicating that it's exilic travels that rob you of your health. To be sure, however, the Gemara in Mesechet Gitten on page 70 does make a pretty bold statement. The Gemara says, I do have it somewhere here. Here we are. The Gemara says on Dafayin that there are three things that serve to shorten a person's life. And one of them is journeying. And the Gemara says we know this because we have a Pasuk. <laughs> and the Pasuk is Shlesha Dvarim Makhishim Koicheshaladim. There are three things that weaken a person. And one of them is 
דרך. Travel. תכסיב אינה בדרך כויכי. So, interestingly, the Maharsha, in his commentary, says, although typically we understand this verse to refer to exile, he says, there is another way of appreciating David HaMelech's message. Namely, that here King David speaks not about those being exiled from Israel, but rather those returning. Not going to Bavel, but returning from it, coming home to Eretz Yisrael. And the prayer was that the journey itself not tire out and diminish and cause fatigue. So this is precisely what David Melech was praying for, not for exile. It was a pleasure trip, leaving exile behind. And nonetheless, David Melech prays for these people. Yerushalayim, are coming back to Yerushalayim, that there is Torah and it's difficult to travel. And as such, because it's as Maharsha says, invariably it could weaken a person. His And he says that the journey home shouldn't be too taxing. Okay, so we could say that Rabbeinu Bechaya was understanding those words of Tehillim as the Maharsha explains it in the Gemara Masechet Gitten on page Ayin. Okay. So journeys have a way of tiring people out. And Rabbeinu Bachai therefore tells us, because journeys or travel can cause fatigue, and because it would be much healthier to avoid travel altogether, just have betachem. And if you have betachem, you won't have to travel. Really, Rabbeinu Bachai, just like that? Well, okay. So I'm going to tell you a story. To make my point, I'm going to tell you a story. So far, all he said to us is that one of the benefits of betochen is we won't have to travel. We won't have to experience the toil and, tra- and travail of the road. And to make his point, he feels he must present us or give us an illustration with a story. Now, I want to tell you that as students of Torah, when we read a story, it's not just a, a cute little tale. And every detail of the story is actually a part of the lesson being conveyed. The first thing we notice about this story is that the protagonist in the story is identified with a very specific terminology. It doesn't say, and it's said about someone. You know, a member of Am Yisro. A a person who had betochen. It says, it is said about one of the Prushim. What are Prushim? 
Well, we'd have to take a look and try to figure that out. Because, because the story is not only about Echad Min Aprushim, but as Rabbeinu Bechaya goes on to say, Ki holach el Eretz he traveled to a distant place, Levakesh HaTeref, because he's seeking to be able to find his find his parnasa, find his sustenance. And in the story we read that he was betchilas prishusay. So number one, we know that it's a parush. Echad min haprusha means he's a parush, and that's a noun that I'll explain soon. And that although he was a parush, that the story happens in the beginning of his development as a parush. So parush literally is translated as an aesthetic. And it's a, you know, as he's beginning his path to aestheticism. So what does that mean? And why do we hear about the fact that he's at the beginning of his path to aestheticism? So I have, I have friends and colleagues who you know, teach Rabbeinu Bahaya, and they just gloss over the story. They, they do this in like five minutes. Yeah, there was a guy, and he was going, and, uh, and he said to this person who was a heretic or a, an idolater, and he had this little argument, and he said, ah, you see, so he didn't have to go anywhere, he could stay right home. I, I respectfully uh, disagree with that approach. I think that this is a very deep story. And we're going to study it, detail by detail, line by line, to be able to mine its first full meaning. Let's talk about uh, Prushim for a moment. Where do, where do we find this terminology? So the answer is in multiple places in the Talmud we find the terminology of, a, of, of Prushim. Literally, that's what observant Jews were called during the waning days of the second Beit HaMikdash, you may be familiar with the terminology Pharisee. Pharisee was just a label. It, it meant people who followed the teachings of our sages. So there were Sadducees in those latter days of the second Beit HaMikdash, people who did not believe in the oral tradition of Torah, who kind of read the Bible, the scripture, at face value, interpreting it as they pleased, or as it seemed, rather than its intended meaning. The oral Torah, of course, was given to us by God, along with the written Torah. And the only way we can appreciate the written Torah is by virtue of the oral Torah. The written Torah, the Chumash, or the Novi, without the oral tradition, is a closed book. It says, for example, to observe Shabbat. But what does that mean? <laughs> if it's pleasurable for me to go fishing, may I go fishing on Shabbat? If somebody enjoys knitting or doing needlepoint or painting, they find that relaxing. Shabbat's menucha. Well, we have an oral tradition about what precisely is meant when the Torah speaks about observing Shabbat. The Torah says to put on tefillin. What precisely does that mean? What is a sign or a frontlet or a phylactery? What is it? What does it look like? How is it made? The Torah tells us that we should eat meat that's kosher. We should slaughter the meat as I have commanded you. But nowhere does the Torah detail 
what the meaning of kosher slaughter is. So shechita, or how meat is made kosher, is an oral tradition. So there were Sadducees, they didn't believe in that. And people who did believe in the writings of our sages were called Perushim, freely translated as Pharisees, made popular by Mel Gibson about a decade and plus ago. I was coming back from, uh, maybe going or coming back to the States. And at the border, they asked me, where do you live? And I said, in Toronto. And they said, but you're an American citizen. I said, Abdul, I'm a Canadian citizen as well. And the fellow said, what do you do? So I said, I'm a rabbi. I have a congregation. I, I teach. And I said, I also have the privilege of being a chaplain with the York Regional Police. He said, oh, that's very interesting. He says, tell me, are you a Pharisee <laughs> or a Sadducee? He kind of caught me by surprise. <laughs> I realized he probably watched that Mel Gibson movie. I said, well, if you, if you have to label me, I suppose I'd be a Pharisee, but I'm just today called an Orthodox Jew. Anyway, the point is that the word Pharisee became, or Purushim, became a borrowed phrase or term for people who were observant of Torah and mitzvahs. But that's not the way it's meant in its literal iteration. Yes, it is an actual term, and it describes a particular way of living. For example, we have a Gemara. This is just one of a number of examples. There's a Gemara which is found in Masechet Avodah It's found on page 20, side B. And the Gemara there tells us that a person shouldn't allow his mind to wander and have lustful thoughts, for that will cause him to fall into a sinful pattern. And then the Gemara quotes one of the sages of the Mishnah, whose name was Rabbi Pinchas ben Yor, one of the most colorful and fascinating Tanaic teachers of Torah. So Rabbi Pinchas ben Yor said that Torah... That the study of Torah, and here we speak specifically not about the entity of Torah, but the activity of Torah study, brings a person to zihirut. Zihirut means to be meticulous or extremely careful, scrupulous. It means that we are zahir, careful, about the observance of the mitzvahs. So a person who studies Torah, who is knowledgeable and literate, will be more careful about the observance of mitzvot. The more you study, the more you learn the profundity, the depth, the meaning, the application of the mitzvot, the more meticulous you are in their observance. Then the Pincha said, Zihirut mevili dei zrizut. If you take mitzvot seriously, and you should, if you invest yourself carefully in the performance of a mitzvah in its meticulous or proper fashion, that'll lead you to be quick on the draw. Zerizut is typically translated as alacrity. Not to allow time to pass by, but to seize the moment. As they say, don't do tomorrow what you can do today. Or if you can do it now, Execute the task. Get it done. Zrizot is a great virtue. In fact, the first Jew, Avraham Avinu, is praised for his alacrity in fulfilling the will of Hashem. Repincha said that Zrizot, that doing mitzvahs with great haste, enthusiasm, and alacrity, may brings a person 
to be in a pristine spiritual state, literally clean, clean of sin, purged of sin. And then he says, Nikiyut mevili de prishut. Being clean of sin brings a person to, I'll translate that literally as separated, set aside, distinct. And prishut, that kind of separation, mevili de tahara, that brings to purity. And purity brings to chasidut, to piety. So what does that mean, prishut? What is it? Rashi tells us, af midover hamutar. When we speak about separating, we're not talking about avoiding the things that the Torah proscribed. That's obvious. If we talked about zihirut, being meticulous in one's observance, we're already not doing the things we shouldn't do. So what then is prishut? Rashi says, This means that you avoid things which are permissible. Porish, the person separates themselves. So, it's if you want to get technical, not about being orthodox. It's about going beyond the letter of the law. The porush is not the orthodox Jew. The porush is the pious Jew. He's the person who asks not what he must do for Judaism, but rather, what can he do to be more immersed in Judaism? What can he do? In addition to avoiding the things that the Torah actually proscribes, what can he do to spiritually sensitize himself and become closer to Hashem? This idea is discussed by Nachmanides, Ramban, in his commentary on... Parshat Kedoshim, which is smack in the middle of the third book of the Torah, the book we call Leviticus. In Parshat Kedoshim, so Ramban famously interprets the words Kedoshim to you, that you should be holy in keeping with the words of the Torah Kohanim or the Medrash that says, Purushim to you, you should be separated. And unlike Rashi's interpretation on that verse, who says it means to avoid licentiousness or sinful behavior, Nachmanides maintains that this refers to the prishut, which is muzkeret b'chol makom b'talmud. This refers to the separation that is talked about in Talmudic lexicon, such as the Gemara I just shared with you, the teaching of Rav Pinchas ben Yair that's found in Meseches Avedezara. So he says, he there and ba'aleha, those who immerse or engage themselves in that kind of behavior, nikra prushim. They're called prushim. Aesthetics. And Rabban explains. He says, the thing is this. The Torah is very explicit in prohibiting various inappropriate relationships. And incidentally, an inappropriate relationship from a Torah perspective does not only refer to the most intimate of relationships. A relationship that is intimately oriented, even if it's what people in the Western world call casual, even if it's not 
actually bedding someone down, but if it's behavior which is intimate in nature, or has what you would call innuendo, intimate innuendo, it's also prohibited by the Torah. The Torah proscribes us, according to the Rambam, it is biblically prohibited to draw close to somebody with whom the Torah prohibits an actual intimate relationship. So any kind of intimacy, and this could refer to all kinds of touching and kissing and so on and so forth, all of that is prohibited. So the Torah is very explicit. And now when the Torah comes along and says, don't eat non-kosher food. You're not allowed to consume food that's not kosher. Yes, you can have a pig valve if you need a valve replacement. And you, can't wear, you can wear pigskin shoes and you can play football. But you can't eat the football. I mean, it's not really edible. You know what I mean. These are proscribed in the arena of consumption. And then Ramban says, the Torah per- permits intimacy between Ishvi Ishtai, where there is a, a couple that lives under the ages of sacred matrimony. And you can eat whatever you want as long as it's kosher, including all kinds of meat and wine. In Cain, if so, says Nachmanides, if a person is allowed any volume or form of intimacy with their own spouse, if a person is allowed to eat any volume as often as they want, as long as the food is kosher, then we have a pleasure-seeking animal. Just because the person doesn't pleasure himself with somebody else's spouse or doesn't pleasure themselves by eating something which is proscribed or prohibited, they're entirely driven by their sense of libido. They have no virtue, no specific moral value to life. They're not interested in that. They're interested in having a good time. In a kosher way, of course. They don't want to violate any Torah laws. But what is the essence of life for them? Eat, drink, enjoy, be merry. Tomorrow you may die. That's the Roman version of Epicure's description of life. Epicure was an avowed atheist who believed in a nihilistic approach to life. He said life has no meaning. There is no soul or afterlife from God. You get what you see, you see what you get, and that's it. In the modern age, they called out, YOLO, you only live once. Oh, but I'm, I'm Jewish, I, I want to follow the Torah. Okay, so YOLO Jewish. Have all the fun you can have, enjoy every moment, get your fill of every kind of sensual pleasure, all provided that it's kosher. That's not really a righteous or spiritually minded, elevated perspective on life, says Ramban. In fact, a person could be an absolute glutton. He can be And Nachmanides coined the phrase, behold ye a novel. He will be a degenerate, a repugnant, morally and spiritually repugnant individual, a degenerate. <laughs> with a kosher sign. So, Parishus begins where orthodoxy ends. 
technically, orthodoxy means perfection. It means do everything exactly according to the letter of the law. You have law-abiding citizens, and you have patriotic citizens. Law-abiding citizens will do everything they can as long as they can get away with it, as long as it's not an actual breaking of the law. They don't care about the country they live in. They don't care about the society they're found in. They care nothing about anybody else. They just, they behave legally. They don't want to go to jail. They don't want to have to live in fear of law enforcement. But they don't care about those around them. And then you have a person who lives with a sense of concern. They're a person who has mores, moral ideas. They, they ask themselves, not what their country can do for them, as a famous president once said, but what they can do for their country. That's the idea of a parush. So the parush is a person who doesn't simply follow the Torah's laws, but a person who goes beyond the call of duty. As one of the commentaries on Ramban, Maharal says, he says, Prishus defined means to forbid oneself that which the Torah permits. Not just to self-flagellate, but but in order to create a barrier, a fence, so that you don't do the wrong thing. We often, in our own lives, create fences or barriers. We know that living on the edge is simply too difficult. That's where Prishut begins. So now we know that when we're looking at the words of Rabbeinu Bachaya, and he's talking about Echad min ha-prushim, one of the Prushim, he's not speaking about one of the Orthodox Jews of the day, one of the Pharisees, but he's talking about a person who is trying to follow a more aesthetic path, a path in which he is avoiding things permissible because he doesn't live to fill his sensual desire or to simply enjoy life. He's careful about things. He draws the line much earlier than the area that the Torah actually places a red line across. Yet, we know that this parush who went on a business trip to seek sustenance was betchilas prishuse. He was just in the beginning of his journey, which is translated as an aestheticism. Now the Pas Lechem, in his commentary on the Chavis Halavavis on the Shara Betochen says, what is the meaning of Betchilas Prishusi in the beginning of his Prishut? He says, Od Lohurgul Bishivat Ohalim. He had not yet accustomed himself to remain or staying put in the environment of Torah spiritual pursuit. And as such, he sounds like mindlessly or habitually went off as he used to to go and seek his fortune. So the obvious question that I asked myself when I was trying to understand the words of Rabbeinu Bachaya 
is why is it important to identify this individual as one of the Purushim? And furthermore, to identify him as an aspiring Purush. Betchilas Prishusai. I should mention to you that our very owner, Beinu Bechaya, has a whole part of the book, Chovet Halavavot, on Prishat, called Shara Prishut, which we're not going to be studying today. And Beinu Bechaya richly develops this idea, which I introduced by means of Nachmanis and the Gemara. So there's a lot to be said about the Parush, but Rabbeinu Bechaya expects that you know something about a Parush, you understand what motivates a Parush, and you must know that this individual was aspiring on the path of Prishut, but not a fully developed Parush just yet. And that's why he went on this journey. Had he been a fully developed Parush, he never would have gone on the journey. But he wasn't thinking like a Parush when he packed his bags and set off. The story continues. He met a person who worships the stars, the zodiac, the various heavenly forces. Be'ir, Asher Holach Eleha, in the city he had traveled to. So he went to a particular city to seek his fortune. It was probably mindful in the sense that there was business to be done. There was profit to be made and he was on the prowl. What wasn't mindful is, is this what a parush does? Is this the mannerism of prishut? It was like mindless. He, he did what he did. He was a business person trying to make a profit on the prowl and he goes to a distant city. Okay. And there he meets an idolater. Yeah, stuff like that happens. You're in business. You meet all kinds of people. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says that the idolater and the parush get into a theological discussion. Now, this person, this idolater, is later identified by Rabbeinu Bechaya twice as an Amgushi. So I didn't know what an Amgushi is, but I did some research. And it seems that this is what's referred to in English as a Magian. The Magians were a specific form or faith system closely related to Zoastricism. And the Magians, who were also sometimes worshipped a deity called a Magi or Magi, the Magians believe very strongly in the stars and the influence of the heavenly bodies. The Magians are referenced in early Gnostic and Christian writings, and they even show up in early Muslim writings. My understanding is that if you went back two and a half millennia ago, the Magian faith system or a form of worshipping the stars or heavenly bodies, was probably one of the most prominent cults. And it seems that an Amgushi, a Magian, would be one of the theologians, or like the 
priestly class or kind of the upper crust of this particular faith system occult. Which, which leads me to the conclusion that this was a theological discussion. This was a very, very a pious Jew, a Jew who wasn't simply kind of crossing the T's and dotting the I's and doing what he had to do, but a Jew who was trying to go beyond the call of duty. And he meets another spiritual seeker who follows a very different faith system, and they get into a theological discussion, which is, you know, conceivable. That happens. People who are theologically inclined will get into a theological discussion. Amr Leha Parush, so the Parush says to the Magian, and he's very like blunt with him, he says, Atem betachlas ha'ivoroin umiyotavona. You have a, you have blinders on. You're living with the, with a great blindness to an obvious truth. And you have a very minimal understanding of how that works. <laughs> so, what does it mean? You have the ultimate blindness, absolute blindness, but minimal understanding. Absolute blindness means no vision. Minimal understanding means, well, some understanding, but incomplete. Which one is it? Did you see him? Did he see him as being absolutely clued out or not fully getting the situation? So the Pas Lechem explains. He says, we came across a verse earlier, a verse that's found in the second chapter of Jer- Jeremiah's prophecies. Rabbeinu Bechai used this verse to illustrate and demonstrate that there is no parav, no middle ground. You're either for God or you're going elsewhere. That real betochen is a sum-zero game or requires absolute commitment, if you will. So, Rabbeinu Bechaya is telling us that this person, this Jewish theologian, this pious Jew, says to the Amagushi, to the Magian, he says to him that, number one, you're totally blind, number two, you don't really understand things fully. He says, Jeremiah speaks of abandoning God, and he says the Jewish people in abandoning God behaved inappropriately on two levels. Shtayim rois, two bad things. Number one, oisvi, oisi ozvu, you left me behind, and I'm the source of all life, God says. Number two, you found a replacement. So it's bad enough if you aren't worshiping the God of Israel. It's even worse when you're choosing to worship another deity. And they actually go together. So the Paslechem says, Absolute blindness. It means an emotional blindness. You're emotionally indifferent. The Jew said, from our perspective, the fact that God is not even part of your pantheon of deities. You don't worship God at all. You don't worship God who created heaven and earth. You worship the stars. You worship the created entities. That represents an utter willful blindness to the source of everything. (laughs) 
You don't know God. They didn't see God as the ultimate power and then worship the idols as intermediaries. In this particular faith system, they worshipped the gods, plural, or deities. They did not believe in monotheism. In this polyistic form of faith, there were different forces, independent of each other, each who could be counted on to provide whatever sustenance, nourishment, or, 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 or life that they were, so to speak, responsible for or that was under their purview within their orbit of ability. So you, you deny the monotheistic God altogether, he says. There's an absolute blindness, like you're willfully blind of the creator of everything. And then he says, instead, you're worshiping a pantheon of gods, and all of these different deities that you worship, hakavonebehem, says the paslechem, is kechovim emazolus, to the heavenly bodies, and to the spiritual forces they represent. So he says, you have miyotavana, you have very little understanding. And listen carefully. She'einon mevinim adavabriya. You're not fully understanding the way it works. The truth is that there is influence that comes from the heavenly bodies to the way life happens or unfolds. We, the Jewish people, also acknowledge this. Did you ever hear of the expression Mazel Tov? A Mazel is a fancy Torah name for a heavenly force. Every time, every frame of time has its own Mazel or angel or heavenly force. So when people are getting married, we say Mazel Tov, it should be in an auspicious hour. That blessing should come to you in this particular frame of time. It should be a good mazel. We're soon going to talk about the possibility of specific geography under the influence of a particular mazel. And that going away from a place can actually align you with another spiritual force. So the parter said... Of course there are spiritual forces. Of course there are, if you will, heavenly bodies that have influence. But they are only kigarzen biyad achoitziv. Would you compliment the paintbrush or the artist? Do you say that the, the sculptor's tools created a beautiful image? Or was it the sculptor himself who created the work of art? So he says, that's, that's the lack of understanding, he says. All of these different forces are but the hammer, the cudgel, and the hand of the artist or carpenter. The hatchet didn't chop the tree down. The person chopped the tree down. The gun didn't kill the person. The murderer killed the person using a gun. Should we keep guns out of bad people's hands? Yes, most definitely. Does that mean that nobody should have guns? Because if people have guns, maybe bad people will get them? Maybe. The argument can be made. I'm not getting into this. It's a huge debate in the States. In Canada, pretty much, it's not even up for discussion. 
But nobody can argue that guns don't kill people. Bad people kill people. You have a very limited understanding, he said. When you are worshipping a spiritual force, you're understanding the beneficence, the sustenance, the divine energy that comes through that system or those wires as being an independent reality when in fact it is not. So you're blind to the creator of everything. You're totally willfully ignoring the one monotheistic God that brings everything into existence. And instead you're focusing on the paintbrushes instead of the artist. Now, you would say, what brush did the artist use to make that? Good question. Somebody who's a painter will know which brush was used. But the brush didn't do it. So this is the theological conversation that this very pious Jew is having with this Magian or pagan theologian. So the theologian is listening, and he says, Amr leho amgushi. By the way, in, in Christian dogma, that's, they connect this to Bethlehem and the star. I mean, they definitely worship stars. It's very clear. It's very clear from their writings that the Magians were into the movement of the heavenly bodies and the influence of stars. And Mazolot. So the Amagushi, the Magian says, wow, I guess he's never met a monotheistic Jew before. He never met a monotheistic person before, probably. After all, monotheism wasn't super popular once upon a time. Only the Jews worshipped God. Everybody else worshipped the pantheon of gods. So the Amagushi said, so what do you worship? Huh? You don't worship the heavens? You don't worship the stars? You don't worship the astrology, the horoscope, the, the good fortune, the luck, the causes. You don't worship any of that. What do you worship? So the parosh said, you want to know what I worship? I serve the creator. And this is a theological discussion. In all likelihood, as I said, the Smagian had never met a monotheistic person. Certainly a monotheistic Jew. So this Middle Eastern pagan is meeting a Jew for the first time, and he says, God, tell me about this God. So the parish explains, so let me tell you about this God. This God is Hayochol, the God who can, in English, is omnipotent. Hamachalkel, the God who provides, the God who gives all sustenance. Ha'echod, the God who is one, because there is nothing other than God. Everything is created by God. And lastly, Hamatif, He is the God who provides every detail of existence, every iota of reality, with exactly what it needs. Asher Enkomoyu. There's nothing like God. There is no. Who else do you have? Who is, who is God's father, mother, brother, sister, partner in crime, I mean in business? No, there's one God. And there is simply nothing else like it. God is non-pareil. Amalei Hamagushi, the Magian said, wow, you believe that? <laughs> you believe that there's this one God who is omnipotent, who provides, 
who is one and who actually gives each and every detail the sustenance it requires? You believe that? He says, you don't seem to believe that. You claim to believe that, but pa'olcha soiser esdvarecha. Your behavior belies something very different than what you're saying. Listen, Rabbi, you talk a fast game. Do you believe a word you're saying? Paslechem goes through these different levels. He says, Porat Our Pharisee, Porush, our aesthetic Jew, pious Jew, he goes into details. He illustrates for this Magian four different areas, superlatives, virtues about God. Because he's trying to give this theologian a snapshot of what we Jews believe. And specifically, what we Jews believe in, insofar as the relationship, the organic or natural relationship that God has with his creation. So he said, number one, you must know the foundation that from our Jewish Torah perspective, God is omnipotent. None of the deities you worship are omnipotent. They have powers. They are potent. They are not omnipotent. They can't do everything. They have their limitations too. So that's number one. Number two, that who is Barich is the Mechalkel. He is the provider. He sustains all of existence. Number three, that God is one. And all the different forces that you're worshipping are actually created entities. Hammers and hatchets. Pencils and paintbrushes. In the hand of the sculptor, artist, carpenter or creator. You worship various deities saying, this God gives us A and another God gives us B. There is a God of sustenance and a God of good health, a God of good cheer and Cupid who brings us love or lust or whatever else. But that's not what we believe in. We, he says, believe in one God who provides everything. And lastly, he's the Matif. He gives individual providence there's a hashkocha hanifla. He has this incredible level of supervision where God's involved with every tiny iota of existence to give each creature or each part of creation exactly what it needs. Every tree, every blade of grass, and of course every person. So the Magian says, really? You say that this God does all these things that should anchor you? There's none of our gods compared to your God? You're right. We don't believe in any deity that has all of these abilities. We don't believe in a deity that's omnipotent. We don't believe in a deity that necessarily provides. You've got to make a sacrifice to it if you want it to provide. You cut a deal with the devil, then you get a slice. You give and you get. God doesn't, our gods don't just provide. They can provide if we earn their favor. We believe that these gods have a very specific arena 
of ability. And of course, sometimes there's conflicting interests. You know, think of Greek or later adopted as Roman mythology. The gods, the wars of the gods, and how they fight, how they vanquish each other. So the Magian says, you know, it's fascinating stuff. Like, you, you actually believe that? I wouldn't know. You don't behave that way. Now, the, our Porosh is kind of offended. He says, really? What did I do not to believe this? Vaheich. Amar he said, Ilu, Hoyomasha, Marta, Emes. If you actually believe what you said, if it was true, then God would give you what you need right in your home. Why don't you stay home then? What'd you come here for? He got you here. The same God that gave you the sustenance and the wherewithal for you to travel here to do business could have given you, provided you with prosperity with your needs right at home. You don't have to come to such a faraway land. The parush has a very humbling moment here. He says, wow, this meiji, it has a point. And so nifsika tainus parush he went cold on this theological discussion, this argument they were having, and he simply turned around the shovel and went right back home. The kibal apricious, and he accepted upon himself to be indeed an aesthetic. from that time, he never left the city again. That's the story. The story of a parush, an aesthetic, the story of a magian, a theological discussion, and then the parush accepting this line of reasoning. He says, You got a point. I shouldn't have left home. Ah. The moment he had betochen that Hashem would provide for him, he realized he made a mistake by coming here. Now, this idea is not Rabbeinu B'chayah's idea. It isn't. It's actually found in the Medrash. This particular story, at least in the Medrash Tanchuma, is slightly different. There's a little bit of a different story that has a similar message. I would have to make the educated guess that this is a real story. This actually happened, that it's not just a metaphor. And the details here are precise. The problem is that this idea seems to contradict other ideas in Torah. So let's first take a look at the Medrash so I can prove to you that this is actually not Rabbeinu B'chai's idea per se. He is using this idea in the arena of Betochen, but it's not his idea. The, the, the idea that God could give us food wherever we are, we don't have to travel, is something which is found in the Medrash Rabbah on the book of Leviticus, in the book of Vayikra, in the Parsha or Seder, which is called Tazria. There in the 15th chapter, the Gemara talks about the paranormal condition known as Tzoras, which includes the discoloration of skin, of derma, or of, of uh, sometimes hair. So the epidermis of a person changes colors in a supernatural way, or the hair changes in a non-normative, contagium-related fashion. So the Gemara is talking about the different hairs and the fact that each hair has its own life, if you will. 
It has its own source, its own follicle, and there are multiple hairs coming out of the same follicle. So the Gemara says, A person was teaching. He was saying, Every follicle, every fair hair follicle has its own, so to speak, root. It's got its own area where that particular hair grows from. And one hair doesn't take sustenance from the other hair. The hairs don't steal from each other. Each hair gets its own sustenance. So one can siphon off life from the other. So this uh, Torah teacher is talking about this. Individual follicles and individual roots. So his wife says to him, Really? You believe that, eh? And now you want to go out for business? Stay home. Stay home. Your creator will provide for you. But you have to go somewhere else for. Why do you need to take away somebody else's business opportunity? Every hair has its follicle. Every person has its parnasa. I mean, this is essentially what Rabbeinu B'chai is saying. As the Pirush Maharzu says, We do not have two hairs that are receiving their life force their animation from the same follicle. And that would weaken the person, it seems. Now the Eitz Yosef tells us about a similar story, which is found in the Medrash Tanchuma, about a Kohen who was examining this kind of epidermis or hair discoloration. And he wanted to leave the country. And his wife said to him, I don't understand. If every hair has to be looked at individually, if every hair has its own source and its own follicle, so then every human being certainly has his or her own individual spiritual source of sustenance. Yazbin l'cha, hakadosh baruch parnasa. God will show you, give you a parnasa. Tuv, stay home. Umisha Baracha, the one who created you, he'll give you what you need. So we have this idea that God, who's omnipotent, gives everybody what they need in their right place. But the problem with this, and the problem is, as Yankiv Emden points out, the Gemara in Bava Metziah seems to say otherwise. The Gemara says like this. It's a Gemara which is found in the bottom of page 75b. It's the very last words of the fifth chapter of Mesechet Bava Metziah, known as Ezeo Neshech. And the Gemara talks about the need that a person might have to travel on business. And the Gemara says, What is the meaning of acquiring a master over oneself? So the Gemara says, this is when you assume that your sustenance, your parnasa, comes from this one or that one, but really it comes from God. Very similar ideas to 
what Rabbeinu Bechaya talks about. Another idea could be you acquire a master over yourself. You give your children, who are your heirs, you give them your residuals before you die. Now, you, now they're your master. Another possibility, he says. The Bishle, Baha'i Mosa, you're having bad luck in this place. Mosa really means a place. And you dig your heels in and you say, no, I'm not going to another place. I'm staying right here. Staying right here. So you're creating a situation where a force will dominate you. What force are we talking about here? As the Khatam Sofer explains this Gemara, he says, every place has a different angel. A different, if you will, divine minister. And it could be that the wireless system, that the angels whose job is to provide sustenance to this particular geography, we talked about this earlier, every frame of time has its own angelic force or its own angel, and every place has its own system through which prosperity comes. The animation, the, 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 the vivifying energy that comes from God comes through a particular system. So you should have left the place. Should have left the place. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah tells us that Mishana Mokim, Mishana Mazel. You change places, you get new Mazel. So in that place you have bad Mazel, it wasn't a good fit. You go to another place, you have a good Mazel. This is not a material thing, it's a spiritual thing. So if you insist on staying in a place that doesn't agree with you, what happens is you, you have acquired, so to speak, a foreign master for yourself. What would you do that for? In the words of the Marsha, let's say a little bit differently. Marsha says, I don't know what it means he acquires a master over himself. What does that mean? And he says, maybe it means that if you stay in this place and you pray, God's not going to listen. Maybe in another place your prayers will be heard. You know, the Wi-Fi is down for you here. It's not your system. It's not your network. Why would that be the case? So the Marshal says this might have something to do with a person going through the pain of displacement, it serves in his atonement. And the marshal says, you take a look, you see what Avraham Avinu Lech Lecha, he had to go out of one place, he had to be remade. And when he was remade, then he was able to achieve his blessings. He could become all he could become, but he first had to leave home. So how do we square this? I mean, here Rabbeinu Bechai is telling us, if you have and stay right home. And the Gemara openly tells us that that's a foolish thing to do. You're boxing yourself in. You're blocking yourself from your own blessings. There's a fascinating tshuva from the Rashba. The Rashba was a great Sephardic sage 
Rabbeinu Shlomo ben Avram ben Aderet. And the Rashba, in his, not his commentary on the Talmud, but in his response in volume 1, in response in 19, he was asked to explain these words of the Gemara. And the question he received was, does not Jeremiah say, it's not uh, your steps, it's not your way. A person doesn't prepare his own steps. And here the Gemara says, pick yourself up and leave. It's not, it's not looking good, move somewhere else. So the Rashba says, I have to tell you, sometimes a person sins. And because of his bad behavior, he removes from himself the possibility of receiving the nourishment, the blessing, and the sustenance that was destined for him. So he needs an atonement. He needs to cleanse himself. One of the methods through which a person can obtain kapara or cleansing is shinimokin. So the Rashba says it's not about the mazal in one place or a mazal in another place. He says it's a euphemism. It really means that you have to exile yourself. And when you exile yourself, that becomes a form of atonement or cleansing. And that allows you to then receive the blessings from Hashem. It humbles you. This is my place. This is my orbit. This is my zone, my comfort play area. And now I have to leave all that. That's uncomfortable. Well, maybe in doing so, it humbles me. It removes some of the hubris and the arrogance and the indifference and the self-reliance. And that'll position me to receive Hashem's blessings in a more profound way. So according to Rashba, the Gemara should be understood as a person who is exiling himself from place to place. Maybe his bad luck, proverbially speaking, is caused by his bad behavior. And his exile will cleanse him. Or he says, another possibility is that the mazel of the place means that there is a certain energy and sometimes there's a, not a good energy. The spiritual energy there is not one of sustenance and plenty. You go somewhere else. You go out of that bad zone, so to speak. You have better reception elsewhere. <laughs> Rashba says, let me tell you this. If it was decreed upon a person that something is going to happen, he can move to the nth degree. It's not going to make a difference. You can move around the world. If something was decreed upon somebody, you can't hide from God. This is not Jonah and the whale. It's just indicating that sometimes a different place could have a different mazel. And he says, really, we know that ain't mazel Yisrael, the Jewish people, are not under the sway of any of these things. And that really, Hashem is a part of his nation, and we have this direct wireless cable, or this link, this, this fiber optic that connects us to God, and we're not given over to mazelos. And therefore, 
What it means is that when a person behaves inappropriately, he switches, if you will, networks. He goes off God's network and he goes on to the network of the Mazolus. So then he's getting his sustenance from a different place. This is exactly what Rabbeinu Bachaya was talking about in the beginning of his introduction, where he said, if you're not receiving sustenance from God, you're receiving your sustenance from elsewhere. Of course, it all comes from God, but there it comes in a circuitous fashion, and God obfuscates his presence, fully concealing and hiding himself. Many of the things we talked about earlier are actually referenced here in the Rashba. The meaning of the tochacha, the rebuke, where God says, Astira I will hide my countenance, anthropomorphically speaking. Let's see how it goes. Maybe you remember some 33 or 34 episodes ago, we talked about the Jewish people living in the land of Persia, where the Magians came from, by the way. And, and they said, we got to go to Achashverosh's party because Achashverosh takes care of us. He provides for us. And God said, oh, does he? So you don't believe in my supernatural sustenance? Well, then knock yourself out. If you wish to be placed under the sway of nature, then by all means, become a statistic. Avobet Sadikim, but he says, the Rashba says, but the righteous. The righteous say, Gam ki elo begets It doesn't matter where I am. I could be in the valley in the shadow of death. Laira, I have no fear. Why? Ki Because you are Shema with me. So the Rashba seems to indicate that it has something to do with sin. It has something to do with imperfection. It has something to do with mistakes. It might have a connection with atonement or cleansing. So how do we know that if a person has betochen, that he doesn't have to do these things? It does seem to be a bit of a problem. And the idea of Going somewhere to seek out your business is actually a mitzvah. If it's a mitzvah, it's something the Torah ordains you to do. Rabbi Yankiv Emden, in his Sefer Migdal Oz, he really goes to town on this Rabbeinu Bechaya, but he does it, and I have to say, in a very, very respectful fashion. Rebankiv Emden didn't mince words. And when he got into his polemics or theological phrase with other Gedele Yisrael, he was fierce, taking no prisoners. You just have to look into the disagreement, the dispute that he had with Rebianus and Eberschitz, who taught many ideas of Kabbalah and Yankiv Emden was relentless in his pursuit of the Yad Dvash. Okay, so, but here he's very careful. He says, Omar, he says, Sholav. Sholav says, Sholav. What is Sholav? So, we don't even, we're not sure. First of all, Sholav is the gematria of 336, which is the gematria of Yaakov ben Svi. So he doesn't want to name himself. He doesn't want to name himself. He is a gematria. Number 336 said, Yaakov ben Svi is his name. Another interesting thing about Sholav is, it seems to be a mistake. Where do we find this? 
So actually, if you look in the Targum, in the book of Numbers, in the sixth chapter, where we speak about the Nazarite who became ritually defiled suddenly or accidentally in an unplanned fashion. You know, one of the things a Nazarite, the person who accepts upon himself specific chaste vows, is that he's not allowed to drink wine and he's not allowed to come in contact with the dead. So in Numbers chapter 6, verse 9, it says, If somebody suddenly dies on him, and he's right there, the team and he becomes ritually defiled, which he's not allowed to be, but he didn't mean to be there. It's not like he entered the hospital where somebody was about to die and sat down next to the person's deathbed. Somebody had a sudden event and died on the spot. So then... He's become ritually impure and he has to shave off his hair, the hair that he was allowing to grow, and it's got to start all over the place. All over again, pardon me. So the Targum renders sudden, the Pesach, Pisim, the Targum renders as Bischef Shalu. This is found in the Unculus and is also found in the Targum Yonatan. And the commentary in the Targum Yonatan says, Pirush, what does it mean Bischef Shalu? Shalu, Shilamad Vavi says, Shogig. Shogig. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. It's, a, it's inadvertent. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not a gross misdemeanor. It's inadvertent. So, the Yaakov Sendin's like, he's very uncomfortable with this, with these words of, of Rabbeinu Bachai. And he says, doesn't, something seems like inadvertent here. Something doesn't seem right, he says. He says, I myself I have lots of faith in Hashem and I had to go look for Parnosa. It wasn't because I lacked faith. It was a decree from on heaven. I had to go somewhere. And it could be a good thing for him. After all, the Gemara says it. And here, Rabbi Yankov Emden goes through different reasons why a person would have to be displaced. First of all, he says it could be galut, which is a good thing for you. It atones for sin, like the Rashba said. He says something else interesting. He says it may have nothing to do with the spiritual force of a place. It may have to do with the influences in that particular place. Maybe in this place, there's bad people. And if there's bad people, if you stay there, you might easily get swept up in that same bad way of living. So you need to escape. Get away from there. And he says, and the last, of course, is this idea of Mishana Mokim, Mishana Mazel. And he says, we, we see, in fact, we see, in fact, that all of our patriarchs and matriarchs had to move. Abraham had to move in order to realize his potential. Isaac is also in a state of flux and he's sojourning. Jacob gets exiled, comes back home, later exiled again. Moses, King David, they all had to leave home. So what does Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar mean, he says? Many prophets, many pious people accepted upon themselves this proverbial galut to atone for their sins. We know of Hasidic masters who would do this on an annual basis. The famous brothers, Rebeli Melech of Lijensen of Zusha of Anipoli, on an annual basis during the Tishabov period, would conceal themselves, dress up like simple peasants, and wander about begging alms and trying to feel the pain of the needy and the deprived. 
so that they would be more sensitive and more caring, more compassionate. So there are many great tzaddikim who purposely sought sustenance elsewhere. So Bianchi Emden has his own way of reconciling the story, which gives you the understanding that it's a real story. He says, the story is that this man came there, maybe because he's getting away from bad people, but he found even worse people. He found himself now in a, in a theological quagmire. He's arguing with this Magian guy. He says, i got to get out of here. Which is not what the story says. Now, Rabbi Yaakov Emden is very careful with Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar. He knows he's doing with, with the greatest of the great. I mean, this is like it's a thousand years ago, the beginning of the Rishonim. But he, he, he's, he doesn't know how to wrap his head around it. He says, like, I, I, don't, I don't really get this. Seems something's inadvertent here. So what, what really, what is happening? How do we understand this? How do we understand this? Let me just tell you that in, in Shulchan Aruch, we have this discussion. In, in chapter 248 in the Tur and the Shulchan Aruch, and the Magen Avram talks about it in Sukkot and Tess, it says clearly that we follow the opinion of Rabbeinu Tam that a person is permitted to travel and to seek sustenance even if it's more than his or her bare needs. Even for what you would call a little bit of luxury. A little bit of respite. There's a fascinating halacha which is found in the Orach Chaim of the Orach HaShulchan. This is in the 90th chapter in the Laws of Tefillah. He talks about the importance of praying daily with a quorum. I mean, davening with a minion, as we call it. He says a person is required to travel four miles every day to participate with a minion. He says you're even required to go like a full mile out of your way. I'm not sure if it's a mile. He says it's the it's Russian virst. Uh, I think a virst is a kilometer maybe. He says it's self-understood that a person shouldn't be getting up in the morning and going off to business without davening with a minion. In fact, Arach HaShulchan says it's prohibited. So he says, so how come people aren't doing this? How come there's so many people who are traveling on business and they're missing a minion and pray on their own? He says it's going to be very interesting. The fact that Observant Jews, pious Jews, aren't always careful about this. Because we're traveling to make a living. It's a mitzvah. He says it's a mitzvah to provide sustenance for your wife. It's a mitzvah to provide sustenance for your children. You're obligated to provide for your spouse. And he quotes the Gemara, which is found in Mesechet Ketubot, that outlines the responsibilities of a Jewish husband towards his wife. And he says, The person who is ever doing righteousness is the one who provides for his family. It's a mitzvah. So what's Rabbi Mechayat talking about? <laughs> How could he be sure if I have betachen? I don't have to leave home. I can stay home. I found a fascinating tshuva of the Noida Yehuda. Hmm. I think that's the book, one book I left downstairs. All right, anyway, it's, it's found in the Madura Tinyon of the Neidah Behuda. And Neidah Behuda is asked a question about, about hunting. Fascinating question. He says, first of all, Jews don't hunt. 
We're not going to just hunt, he says. Nimrod is a hunter. Esau is a hunter. And then he says, hunting? For what purpose? You're endangering your life. You're not allowed to do that. He says, it's cruel. It's, it's cruel to take life. You take life when you need to sustain yourself. He says, if it's Parnassa, you're permitted. But just hunting for sport? He says, it's anathema to Judaism. Out of the question. And then he says, furthermore, it's dangerous. You're not allowed to place yourself in danger. And the Gemara says that if a person places himself in danger, he brings judgment upon himself. So the Neide Behuda, the Rav of Prague, Rav Yecheskel, Lando says, so what if a person is hunting to make a living? Then he is allowed to put himself in danger. That's different than doing a mitzvah. In other words, not only I'm displacing myself, not only I have the wear and tear of a journey or the travels, I'm putting myself in harm's way. But it's a mitzvah. So, so what's Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar talking about here? So the truth is I, I don't know the answer for sure. I can't tell you I know the answer, but this is what I think is the answer. Or this is the way, this is, this is as I understand it. And my understanding of this is based on the fact that Rabbeinu Bechaya emphasizes in his story that he's talking about a parush in the beginning of his precious who develops his precious after locking horns with this Amagushi, with this Magian. Allow me to direct your attention to the end of Sefer Zeroyim. That's one of the books of Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. In Sefer Zeroyim, we finish off with the laws of Shemitah and Yovel, when the land of Israel lies fallow in the Jubilee. And this book, as a rule, talks to us about agriculture, and agriculture for Jews in Israel has a lot to do with gifts to the poor and to the priestly class, to the Kohenim and Levim. The Rambam finishes off the laws with Shemitah Vayova, telling us that the tribe of Levi did not merit territory. They didn't get a particular portion or parcel or province of land with the rest of the Jewish people. And when the Jewish people went to war, they did not receive their portion of the spoils. Why? Mipnei, because Hashem, because their job, they were selected by God, separated by God to serve Hashem. They were the ones who ministered in the base of Migdash. They were the ones who were the teachers. They were the rabbis. They were the teachers. They were the preachers. They were the guides, the mentors, who showed the Jewish people how to behave. As per the biblical verse, Yoiru Mishpatecha Liyakov. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, in his blessing for the Levites, says, You are the teacher of justice, of laws, of ordinances to Jacob, to the rest of the Jewish people. Torotcha, the Torah teachings, Li Yisrael. And therefore, the tribe of Levi was separated taken out of circulation from the ordinary comings and goings of everyday life. They are not included in the draft. They're exempt. They don't receive inheritance. They don't receive 
they don't receive any kind of residuals. So how do they live? He says, oh, Baruch Hashem Chayla. Hashem blesses his legions. And Hashem says, I take care of you. So the Levi, he's got to do his job. The Levi and the Kohen have to do their job, and Hashem will take care of And then the Rambam says, Veloi Shevet Levi Bilvat. This is not only about Shevet Levi. Elakol Ish Ish. Every person. And as the Rebbe points out in one of his letters, which is printed in Lakut Asichas, Chelek Yud Gimel, I believe, yes. That the Rebbe says that kol ish ve'ish, every single person necessarily refers to all of humanity. All of humanity, not only, it doesn't say the Jewish people here, but kol ish ve'ish mikol boy oilam. Ashanod varuchay, a person who's impelled with a generous or devoted spirit. He has come to the awareness of the understanding. He should separate himself. He should stand, as we say before God, He should serve Hashem. He should, he should devote himself to Hashem. To know God. He goes in an upright, righteous fashion. The way God really made people to be. Not convoluted and corrupted. Innocent. Straightforward. He doesn't make the calculations that people usually make. If a person does this, then he becomes wholly sanctified. Highest level of holiness of Kedusha. God will be his portion. He will receive that which he needs. You're not thinking about material pursuit. As the Rebbe points out, quoting the Marsha, that you are following the pathway of Aaron Akoin, becoming singularly devoted to God and God alone. In that case, Hashem provides you with what you need what you need. And here the commentaries say that Dover Hamaspik doesn't mean luxury. It doesn't mean that you have extra sustenance. Bitsimtsum. You get by. You live as an aesthetic. Now if a person wants to live in a more luxurious fashion, He's permitted to do so. But then he has to make it happen. Then he has to invest the toil and the effort. But if you're prepared to devote yourself entirely to God, Hashem will provide for you as God provided for the Kohenim, for the members of the Levite clan. As it says, Dovan Melech says in Psalm 16, Hashem is my portion. He's my cup, so to speak. God provides for me. So I would like to humbly suggest that Rabbeinu Bechaye is talking to us about a parosh. The parosh is a person who the Rambam is talking about. The Levi Bulvad. This is a person 
who could be anybody. This is a theological discussion that went on between a Jew and a non-Jew. The Magian could have been like this too. The Parosh said to him, explained that I serve God, I worship God, God provides, he gives us everything we need. So the Magian says, I don't understand. If you believe that if you devote yourself to God as a Parosh, and you're going to do what you can to serve Hashem, absolutely, what are you traveling here for? Stay right home. Ah. But this is just Petchilas Preshusri. It hadn't yet fully dawned upon him. He hadn't yet fully, if you will, absorbed the message of Preshus. And when he heard this from that Magian fellow, he said, Oh, oh you are right. And he turned around and went right back home. Now tell me, my friends, what's the basis for the Ramba making such a big statement, such an assertion that you devote yourself to God and everything will fall into place? You place your trust in Hashem and you devote yourself to God, He will provide exactly what you need. That's what the Medrash is talking about. Not talking about living a more luxurious life, talking about living a life which means exactly what you need to keep body and soul together, nothing extra. No condiments, no french fries, Forget about ketchup. Bread and water. You don't need cake. You don't need steak to stay alive. If you want to live a life like that, you can stay right home. And that fits perfectly into the psak of the Shulchan Aruch, which follows the opinion of Rabbeinu Tam, who says that it's a mitzvah to make parnosa, even if you're talking about not survival, but luxury which clearly the Aruch HaSholchan alludes to, which clearly the, the Neideh B'Yehudim, Adura Tanyana, in the second volume of, of, of his response is talking about. It's a mitzvah. A person is allowed to do that. The point, perhaps, then, is this. I can't tell you that if you have Betochen, you must stay home, or you never have to travel. I can say to you, as I believe Rabbeinu Bachai is saying to you, if you want to have just what you need to live an aesthetic lifestyle, your betochen is powerful enough to bring you that which you need, that which you seek. And if Hashem wishes that you be somewhere else, don't you worry, then He'll arrange it, you be somewhere else. And oftentimes, that's precisely the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu arranges it to be. As the Shara B'tochen, the Kahas version of the Shara B'tochen, clearly states that the Baal Shem Tev teaches that divine providence leads a person to a certain place. He explains the verse that you go to the place, to the place that Hashem has chosen, to make His name known there. The Baal Shem Tov explains that you must know you go from one place to the other because God has chosen this path. Why? You have a job to do, to make His name dwell there. In other words, Hashem orchestrates that you end up in a specific place to spread the light of God in that very place as is spelled out in the Hayom Yom for the 18th day of Elul. 
There's a beautiful story that's told in Shmuz Vesipurim. It was authored by Rabbi Fal Nachman, or Falakan, Rabbi Elkan's father. I spent like an hour looking for it yesterday. I couldn't find it. But I, I distinctly remember the story in Shmuz Vesipurim. And to the best of my memory, there was a, a watch repair person living in Polotsk. And he came to the Rebbe Maharash. He wasn't able to make Parnasa. There were lots of other watchmakers or watch repairmen. So the Rebbe tells him, the Rebbe Maharash, the fourth Rebbe, Rabbi Shmuel, tells him, why don't you move to a place called Vladimir? Over there, you'll have Parnasa. And so he moves to Vladimir, and he finds Parnasa. There's no other watchmaker in town. It's great. Parnasa is great. And he comes back to the Rebbe. As the story goes, it was a chassid. He comes back to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe asked him, how are things? And he says, my Parnasa, begashmi, is my material sustenance is great now. Now, my spiritual sustenance, I have nobody to talk to. I, I have nobody to study with. I have no peers. Everybody's very ignorant in the city. The Maharash says to him, don't you realize? Hashem could have provided for you in Polotsk. He arranged that your material parnasa should be in Vladimir so that you, in turn, will be able to provide spiritual nourishment for the people who are living there. In other words, he had to move to a new city, not for material sustenance, but for his spiritual sustenance, to fulfill his own destiny, to become a teacher of Torah. In Polotsk, he wasn't a teacher. He wasn't a source of influence. That wasn't his thing. But in a place like Vladimir, suddenly he was supposed to rise to the occasion. And he missed the point entirely. In the way that Hasidus frames this, you don't need to go there for material parnasa. You need to go there for spiritual sustenance. You know, I had a little story that kind of, uh, kind of brought this home for me. So I'm... I'm um, I was asked to go somewhere to speak, and I really didn't want to go. I really didn't want to go. But I was pressured, and there was nobody else. So I finally gave in. It was an important meeting that I had, and it was before the Zoom days, and I participated in the meeting um, like via conference call, and I spoke at the Sima Rambam in the Midwest of the United States. And, and um, I had an early, very early morning flight. It was Friday, and I had to be back in Shul. It was a oof of that Shabbos. And I, I was a stopover, it was a crazy flight, so I stopped over in Minneapolis and, and I did the little radio thing and I got back on the next plane and everything is working, it's all perfect. And on the second uh, leg of the flight, I'm sitting next to a very intelligent woman from a different faith system. And I'm talking to her, so I'm talking about the seven Noahide laws and divine providence and how God's engaged with the law of creation. And the flight is like taking forever. And I get the sense all of a sudden, we seem to be going in circles. So I call over one of the flight attendants says, like, why don't we land yet? So, well, there's a problem. We're not sure yet. So we find that 50 minutes later that in Pearson Airport here in Toronto, one of the de-icers was broken. And because the de-icer was broken, the runway was full of planes iced over because it was snowing and they couldn't take off. And there were no runways. So we were circling in the air waiting for a runway to open up and finally we were running out of gas. So we had to fly to another airport. And the next thing I know, I hear over the, the PA system that we're landing in Flint, Michigan. This is a winter, winter Friday. By now it's already like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Shabbos is in two hours. And I start to hyperventilate. I, I start to flip out. 
going back to be for Shabbat. This is crazy. And as I'm, I called a steward, a stewardess, and I'm, I'm yelling and screaming and freaking out. And this lady says to me, Rabbi, didn't you just tell me that everything happens by divine design? Didn't you tell me that there are no accidents? And I gulped and I said, yeah, I did. She says, what are you getting so upset about? This is God's plan. So, very humbled, I thanked her for her wise words. I pulled myself together. We did land in Flint. And I said, I got to get off this plane. They go, no, 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 we're going to be taking off in an hour. I said, no, 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 I can't do that to me. And I yelled and screamed until they said, well, if you leave this flight, we're done with you. We have no responsibility for you whatsoever. I said, so be it. I got to go off this plane. So I get off this plane, and I'm on the tarmac in Flint, Michigan. <laughs> Huge tarmac, not another plane in sight. I say, could you tell me where to go? The guy says, no, you're on your own. And he slams the door on me. Anyway, I, I finally found my way, and I, I came to the terminal. And a series of extraordinary events happened, and I ended up renting a car. And I came to the yeshiva where my boys were studying just before Shabbos, and I had an amazing Shabbat with them. And when I look back, it was, a, it was beautiful. It was like a beautiful experience that I couldn't have had otherwise. It was all divine design. But sometimes it takes a magian to ground you, <laughs> to remind you what life's all about. That's the story of the Parush and the Amagushi. And I think it's pretty clear to us now that Abbeinu Bechaya is illustrating for us that if we want to live as a Parush, Betochen alone guarantees that we'll be provided for, unless, of course, Hashem decides that for whatever reason we need to move, in which case you embrace the moment and the challenge before you, and you do all you can to be all you can be, because that's ultimately our destiny and our purpose in life. And you may have to leave Polots to go to Vladimir. But it's not for Parnassah, not for material sustenance, but rather because you have a spiritual mission and you can make somebody else's life enhanced and uplifted. You can make a positive difference somewhere else in the world and that's why you're being sent on a mission. That's all she wrote for today. That's the story, and with Hashem's help, we'll continue tomorrow by moving forward into the next benefit that's afforded to us only when we have the proper betochen in Hashem Yisbarach. I hope that was clear. I'm grateful for you joining. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, and don't forget to enable notifications. I look forward to seeing you back tomorrow. Have a beautiful day.